Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined, as always, by the Jonathan to my David, Brandon. <laughs> How you doing, Tony? You know, it's funny. I knew we were doing Old Testament and everything like that, and you said Jonathan to David, and I'm a mm-hmm. new metal fan from the late 90s and early 2000s. I thought you were going to say Jonathan Davis. <laughs> he's, a, he's the lead singer of Corn. I have no idea why my brain oh, went in Korn that direction. Oh, with a K. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> you know I've got a thing for for monosyllabic bands. Like they're all my favorite bands, except for Led Zeppelin, are like Cake. Oh yeah. Tool. Rush. Uh, these are some of my favorite bands. Spoon. I just love monosyllabic band band names. So maybe I should get into corn. I mean, you could. It, it, you know, they've 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 refound their religion over the past few years. So they're oh. they're pretty good guys these days. Apparently, is that right? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, um, how you been doing, buddy? I've been doing great. I've been doing great. How about yourself? Good. You know, don't want to bore the listeners with talking about another South Dakota pheasant hunt that I was on last weekend. But yes, that happened. That's awesome. Uh, Shot a lot of birds, had a lot of fun. Um, weather was, well, anybody who lives in the upper Midwest knows that the weather this year has been crazy mild, like disconcertingly mild. Mild you know, is, uh, yeah, mild is an understatement. I mean, the it's going to be that, like 50 degrees on Christmas Eve in the yeah, Twin Cities. That's crazy. I know. Not I'm not okay with it. I'm ready for some cold and as some much snow. as. As much as I, I'm not a big fan of the blistering cold in the wind in Minnesota, it does feel a little off right now that I'm walking my dog in just like a light jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, same. So, yeah, all good. Plan to get out to South Dakota one more time. Um, I plan to go on an Iowa pheasant hunt with my youngest kid and one of his buddies and his dad uh, after Christmas. So, yeah, you know, still, pheasant. Uh, I mean, hunting season is obviously winding down. But I'm still hoping to get squeeze a few more uh, squeeze a few more hunts in. Um, my guest this week is one of my best friends, one of my favorite persons in the world, Trip Fuller. He f- started the Homebrewed Christianity podcast almost 16 years ago. It is the biggest theology podcast in the world. And he's expanded his uh, audio theological empire into a lot of classes that he does online um, with different theologians and biblical scholars and stuff like that, philosophers. Um, And he and I have launched a project along with our producer, Josh Gilbert, um, that's going to come out starting January 1st called Emerged. And it's an oral history of the emerging church movement, which I was a big part of. And so you can click to that in the show notes as well as to Trip's website where you'll find all, I mean, thousands of of episodes um, of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. But I think what you'll find when you hear this episode is this dude is just freaking genius. I mean, we talk about everything from um, he's an expert in the Star Wars universe. He's an expert in the Lord of the Rings universe. We also talk a great deal about, um, well, we talk about God. We talk about theological anthropology, epiphenomenology. Um, So we go from the sublime to the ridiculous and then back to the sublime and then back to the ridiculous. Uh, 
and it's a great episode. Trip, you might want to slow the speed down. You know, you can do that, people, in your podcast app. You can like listen to it at three quarter speed or half speed because Trip, he's a fast talker. And here's the crazy thing about Trip he listens to tons of podcasts and he listens to them all at double speed. And, and with some app that takes out all the like pauses and breaths. <laughs> so I don't even know how he does it. <laughs> but uh, the guy is awesome. And uh, it's a great episode. Real happy. He, I mean, I've been on his podcast dozens of times. So I finally have had him on once. Um, I'll have to make up for it by having him on again. But yeah, that's it, everybody. Um, Brandon, Merry Christmas, man. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you as well. I know we won't be talking or doing a show. We might until squeeze afterwards. one more in before the New Year, but That's this true. is it before Christmas. So Happy Christmas to everybody, as the Brits say, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Brandon, been just fantastic spending another year working with you. And hey, people, Brandon has also produced and engineered my audio book, which will come out April second. So. So if it doesn't sound good, if it doesn't sound good, you know the source to go to. (laughs) If it doesn't sound good, it's because the narrator, (laughs) yours truly, has some problems. But uh, no, the engineering was par excellence. So thanks for that, buddy. I I really look forward to another year of of uh, podcasting and same here and celebrating the release of that audiobook. So thanks everybody. Merry Christmas. Here's my conversation with theologian, philosopher, and podcaster extraordinaire, Trip Fuller. Hey, Trip, welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. What's it like to be on a podcast? Ah, man, I've heard about these things. I hear it's like internet radio, but on demand of sorts. And, uh, and you can, you can download them on your computer and put it on an iPod. I don't know if you've got one. Uh, And then you can just take your radio shows wherever you go. Uh, in your pocket. Yeah, maybe like while you're hunting. <laughs> uh, listeners may not know, but I've been on Trip's podcast. Have I been on your podcast more than any other guest? Uh, I mean, you're at least in the top three people. I don't, Who would be you the know. other two? Pete, Pete Rollins and... No, 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 because, you know, once, once, Pete, uh, once Pete and I weren't in the same house, it's just really hard to, get him, it's r- yeah. hard to get him on the phone. Um, but I'm guessing like you or Phil or Tom Ord, Tom Ord, yeah, Crossan. I was more. Uh, I, I had a lot more appearances in the early days. I don't know, but, guys, but, but you're going to take them over in the next few months with uh, with a merge. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, uh, Trip, I've I've had this thing where you know I have a lot of friends whose podcasts I've been on yours more than any other, and I've been like, well, I started my own podcast like well, I don't know three or four years ago. Um, but my podcast is so different than most of the other podcasts I appear on. I don't really go on outdoors podcasts. Maybe that'll change with my new book, but I mainly go on like theology and church and religion type podcasts. Mm -hmm. But most of my theology, church, religion people don't really go outside. (laughs) You know, (laughs) theologians are inside people for the most part. Look, I understand that you've got 86 episodes publicly released and I haven't been invited on yet, but I know, I know. I'm working and I'm finally arrived yeah. and uh, I've been trying to go outside daily in order to meet whatever the minimum requirements are. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I got dogs that I walk. Um, when I do my kettlebell workout, it's by the window next outdoors and three or four days a week, I return emails where I smoke cigars on the porch and listen to birds. Yeah. Um, Nice. But I do like fishing. I do like fishing. I know. I know. And you've even taken your kid, your oldest kid out shooting and prep, prepping him for hunting. And let, I'd like to get into that, but, um, let, let's start by, why don't you tell listeners, like you grew up in North Carolina. Did Mm -hmm. you grow up doing stuff outside? I know your dad was a pastor. Um, were you outdoorsy type people? Did you live in the country? Like what what was your experience of nature growing up? I was, uh, a rural Baptist preacher's kid until my family moved to the big city of Raleigh to church plant in fifth grade. So most of my memories growing up, my neighbors were tobacco fields and ponds, which is where like, I mean, if that's what you're doing, you're running around with your dogs outdoors. Uh, We had big black labs though in pictures, they don't look as big, but in my memory, they were big enough that if I tried to hold on a leash when they ran, I flew. So that's my, my memory of Blackie and Cutie. That was their, that was their names. And, okay. uh, you know, we, uh, dad and I, um, for a number of years, we had this thing that we were going to catch a fish every week of the year. And I think we got through 60 some weeks in a row, something like that. Cause there's a pond behind the tobacco field. And it was one of those that, uh, there's so many brim in it, uh, that, if it could be freezing outside and uh, one little cricket could, you know, irritate one of these little, little fish just to pop up and you get credit, um, you get credit. So the, that, that was growing up. My, my dad hunt was a hunter still is. Um, really? And uh, I, he dropped off venison a couple weeks ago. But your uh, dad and, didn't take you out hunting when you were growing up for deer? Oh, 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 I went, I went, I have a, I can't see straight Tony and it, uh, my brother much better at shooting both guns and bows. Okay. Uh, I have a wrinkle in my cornea cause I got stuck in the birthing canal and they had to use, I guess back in the eighties, some form of suction device. So oh, yeah, <clears throat> I kind of see everything crooked. Okay. Uh, like when I was batting, I closed my right eye when, when playing baseball, well, Let's just say I'm an ethical problem if you're a hunter because part of hunting <laughs> is not is actually killing the animal and doing it hopefully as quickly as possible and where yes. you hit also makes harvesting the meat better. Um, so when it goes to hunting, I professional uh, I was a professional at uh, you know hanging out when hunting, like sitting in a tree, really like campfires and things that happen around it. Uh, and if needed, um, wearing wearing really long gloves and getting parts uh, in plastic bags as we hung the dead deer carcass on the uh, swing set. To I mean, I don't know it. if anybody ever told you this, but when when you shoot a rifle, you actually close one eye. I I don't remember much of the <laughs> thing. I just nobody know, ever told you that. <laughs> I I just know that. I I couldn't shoot very well. My brother's fine. Everyone else was. Um, okay. The so the, you're, you're me hitting you're, the first two deer I hit 
required the adult follow-up shot in order oh, gotcha. not to, you know, yeah. go. So, well, I mean, there are, there are hunters out there who are right-handed and left-eye dominant. And there, so there are ways to look down the barrel of, I mean, I don't do it, so I, I couldn't teach you how to do it, but there are ways to do that. I don't know exactly how it's done. But yeah, I, and you know, as, uh, as I got older, we moved in the city and all that kind of stuff. And then like getting to the point that I'm thinking about ethics and consumption and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, like I redeveloped a love for the ethic of hunting. If you're going to be someone that eats meat, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, and that really kind of showed back up when I'm in Los Angeles doing my PhD and, and, you know, becoming, you know, in these interdisciplinary classes that are looking at environmental science and consumption patterns and the treatment of, of animals and factory farms and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the kind of complexity of it, uh, made what was, you know, and a part of the culture I grew up in attractive in a different way again. So did you go through a time when you struggled with the ethics of hunting? And if so, did you like ever talk to your dad about that or confront him or tell him he was a naughty guy or whatever? No, I imagine if I could have successfully been vegetarian, I would have done. I would have been obnoxious about it just because, believe it or not, Tony, there are a number of things that I have deep held convictions about that I could come across as obnoxiously confident and make judgmental statements towards people one, I love. Takes one and no one. Yeah. Yeah, so that so that could have happened. Um but like really the first time I even thought about any of it. Like if you're coming from the south and then move to Los Angeles and you're now uh your entire life you were the edgy religious person in the room and now you're the the only one if you're a Christian that doesn't add a word between Jesus and Christ. Um, not a curse word, just as yeah, the, right. or, you know, you know, these kind of, uh, 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 deflationary in some sense, uh, uh, gaps. Well, the first PhD seminar I ever had was an interdisciplinary one called, uh, eco philosophy and, uh, the, and the scientific reality. And our mutual friend, Phil Clayton was supervising this and he had like science PhDs, philosophy, ethics, religion types in there. Uh, and in, in Los Angeles, the 22 miles between my house and Claremont could be about two hours of driving, depending on how traffic is working. And I was so hungry and going to be late that I pull off the interstate. And what do I see? But obviously the lure of the divine hand, buy one, get one free Whoppers. So uh, I roll through the drive through Couldn't even hold out for in and out no, the line's too long for that. This is That's Southern true. California. That's true. There's That's true. the it's it's like trying to it's like trying to go to Chick Fil A in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, the wait's a lot longer. And so so I I get these and I and I go running into class and you know it's about to start in two minutes and you don't want to be late for your first PhD seminar. And I don't know any of these people, so I'm just being extrovert, uh, you know, white dude from South Energy in a room of. Uh, where I'm only one of this particular demographic and, and, and I'm sitting there trying to engage in getting the kind of, Oh, what's, what, what's up with redneck over here. And, 
I hear someone say, I'm just so hungry. And, you know, I conveniently, right, the Holy Ghost had arranged that I had a whole extra Whopper available, Tony. And so I walk up to this individual and I say, hey, I heard you were hungry. I was running like I had to drive. It got stuck in traffic. At it. it was buy one, get one free Whoppers if you want one. And this individual stood up, proceeded to cry and leave the room. <laughs> and right about that time, a few seconds later, Phil Clayton comes in. And he's starting class and he, and he goes, well, where's, um, well, I got to use, I guess, a different name, Marjorie. Uh, and, and they're like, oh, they're kind of giving him this look like you, you, you don't want to pursue this. And, uh, and I was like, Marjorie, uh, it, it, oh, that was her name. And they're like, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm like, what, what, what happened? And Phil does not clear what, you know, what, what the tension is. And one of her friends looks at me and goes, trip, she's Jane. And I said, I thought you. I thought her name was Marjorie. Like, well, well her name's Jane. Marjorie Jane, and she goes, "No, like Jane Trip, the religion." And I was like, "Oh, like Gandhi," you know. And everything's going into my head, where someone who like doesn't even call the exterminator uh, at her house <laughs> was just offered the buy one get one free Whopper. And so that set up, right, for me, this, like, culture clash where in my context, I thought, you know, you, you, that you you only know the world you're in. Now you're in a different one. And and I came to understand the a lot of the violence and stuff that's in factory farming. The moment you don't think of the rest of nature and the other creatures as just, you know, flesh bots uh, for, for our own consumption and whatnot – there's all sorts of ethical things. And I, I, and it was in that context trying to do that where I realized there's a whole host of other reasons other than it being a unique part of the culture I grew up in uh, that, that hunting um, uh, enabled, right, like nutrient-rich protein, uh, especially in places like North Carolina, less people die in traffic accidents because we eliminated predators of deer. Uh, and I friends that have been seriously harmed in uh, by starved deer running through their neighborhoods and causing wrecks. And uh, you start to go through all these elements. And, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to eat protein and you don't like torturing things, surprisingly, you might want to hunt. And that was a, it was a weird, it was a weird moment. It was a weird, uh, a, a weird, a weird moment. But I, I do think, you know, so often it's the, w the place hunting exists culturally that generates the response to it, yeah. not like once you sit time and think about it. And over time, this individual and I became friends and um, she had a much deeper respect, I think, for that as a live option if you're consuming meat than, you know, factory farming or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this so rarely happens to me because people just know like uh, how much I love hunting and how much I do it. But I got... I wouldn't say trolled, but I got a comment today on Facebook from a guy whom I'm sure you've, you're at least familiar with, who's a Lutheran pastor. He's also got a PhD in practical theology. He's taught at a couple seminaries. Um, I mean, regarding your context, 
statement, his comment was like, I grew up in Wyoming where we all had rifles and hunted, but why in the world would you still be doing that today? And now he's like an, a very leftist Lutheran pastor in New York city. Um, and he well, might, I, and I wrote back, like, I wouldn't well, hunt in New York city. It's, yeah, exactly. I, I wrote back something like, well, somebody's killing the animals you eat. You know, he'll, he'll probably write back and be like, well, I'm a vegan these days, you know, or something like that. But, and that's a deeper conversation about, um, you know, we kill animals when we build houses or when we plow fields to plant them with corn and soybeans, you know? Um, but I'm surprised still, I guess, that people are like, they think hunting is cruel, but they eat commercially raised meat. I, I don't, yeah, I don't get it. I, I, I don't know what more I can do other than say, like, why don't you look into how commercially raised meat is commercially raised? Yeah. I, you know, I kind of have a, I have a harder time with thinking through catch and release fishing than hunting because, uh, you know, at that point you're ripping, <laughs> ripping a sharp object through a fish's mouth for kicks and giggles and setting it back. Yeah. I, I'm with you and I do catch and release bass in our lake. Well, especially um, based on the laws and preservation and yeah, that. Yeah, but, but, but all the guys I know catch and release trout who fly fish. And and yet a lot of them are very like into ethical hunting and food consumption and stuff like that. I, I do think catch and release fishing is a moral conundrum that I also struggle with. And I think I, I deal with this in part in the book, but I think it's partly because it's so hard to anthropomorphize fish mm -hmm. and because it, it, you can't catch shoot and release a deer you know yeah yeah <laughs> i mean you shoot a deer there's that's pretty much it unless you got that deer hunter video game yeah i mean then they bounce right up and run especially away. when they when you get to the zombie level then it's like wild like you think oh i shot it and then you don't even have to reset the game to get to shoot it again just pops right back well, up. Well, speaking of speaking of shooting things and hunting and and um, video games, Courtney wanted me to ask you a question, and that is, um, would you hunt Ewoks if they were available, and what do you think they would taste like? Um. Well, no, I wouldn't hunt Ewoks. Uh, like they they just like in what we know canonically about Ewoks on the moon of Endor is they have uh, a form of symbolic communication uh, to, the, the, to have a kind of moral reasoning similar to the other humanoid species. Uh, the, like in, in the galaxy, far, far away, um, the, it was the empire that privileged the unique expression of consciousness of human beings over even other sentient animal species. So you notice like you don't see a lot of other races running around uh, the empire, no, no, it's just the humans. Um, and so like, even within the, uh, like, if you just assume <laughs> the, the world of star Wars, I think, uh, it, it's clear that the Ewoks are, um, very much part of, uh, like, like the, they function as homo sapien neighbors, right? Uh, at the level of culture they have, they obviously have a concept of the transcendent that C-3PO occupies. 
and stuff. If you think of uh, even like some of the early times, different colonial groups encountered uh, different um, like uh, indigenous populations, often the different uh, ways the human form happened, culture, dress, technology, they inscribe them in a religious context or in understanding uh, that kind of difference. I, I would not want to then think, you know, they're dinner, but have and you they're read, hairy. They're have hairy. You, ha, it's a well, lot of cleaning yeah. involved. No, you just skin them. You just skin you know, that little just, Ewok. I bet that meat is fantastic. You think it's chicken? Is that what you? No, you I think it's a more. Of, I think it's more of a red meat. Honestly, red I think meat? it's like. Have you ever had kangaroo? No. Kangaroo. I bet it's like kangaroo. I bet Ewok is like kangaroo. Deep, a deep red meat, very rich in flavor. Um, well, I'm going to guess that your Lutheran minister that's control, yeah, concerned about you on the internet is going to quote tweet, I think an Ewok tastes like a kangaroo, a good yeah, old okay. red meat, end quote, <laughs> at Reverend Hunter. <laughs> do, you know, do you know the old joke about the guy who was, um, he was being hauled in, he was, he was doing the perp walk after he'd just been convicted in federal court for killing a spotted owl you know, and they're walking him out of the courtroom and some reporter yells, you know, why'd you shoot a spotted owl? What did it even taste like? And the guy says, a lot like bald eagle. <laughs> um, hey, uh, and you know, you in, had- uh, in Mandalorian, you know, there there is even like the or dehumanization um, uh, of, of uh, uh, in... in on Tatooine, right, of a number of the different populations. And over the course of the Mandalorian, no, no, no the Boba Fett series, you realize okay. the sand people have their own culture and are much are much more complex than than as understood by, uh, like, the people rolling around in Mos Eisley and such. Uh, it's a whole kind of humanization of, 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 of an other whose cultural difference doesn't immediately mirror back to you the things uh, that, yeah. that kind of bear the dignity uh, that your culture expects for recognition. Well, have you ever read the the novel The Sparrow? Oh yeah, I love By The me- Sparrow. Okay, I mean, not spoiler alert, but this is like a huge part of The Sparrow and the sequel, The Children of God. Oh yeah, I that is at my favorite sci-fi book. Uh, oh my gosh, it's incredible! But for listeners who I I don't want to spoil it because it, it's it's incredible, but. Um, there is, I'd say, a subplot about this that the human space travelers, Jesuits, who get to this planet, they have certain assumptions about what kind of animal is predator, which is prey, what's edible, what's not edible. And the, the beings on this planet do not share that same thing that you're saying, which is like if an if a being is is sentient and able to communicate that we shouldn't eat it. Well, I mean, but deers are sentient and can communicate, you know, like that's why I feel well, like there's yeah, like okay. de- developmental complexity. Um, but, but where the, do you draw that line? I think it's I think that's morally confounding. I bet yeah. we'll get to a point that uh, large portions of meat eaters won't eat pork. Um just because of like the more we know about pigs, the more we recognize the social complexity 
uh, the the way they engage and communicate that includes like a longer duration of specificity. Um, there's a bunch of little issues like this. You know, when, when I was at the University of Edinburgh for three years, my big research project was on all the science of consciousness because uh, we got uh, the two big opinions right going into uh, the middle of the 20th century are having problems scientifically. Like you get some of them that are like dualists who you know, usually most religious people will be. So the rest of the world's kind of material and mechanistic and that kind of thing. And then whoever gets a soul, those are the ones that have like a unique dignity of right. sorts. And then uh, others use science and get rid of a soul. And, uh, and then there's just material existence. And uh, so, you know, maybe we, we culturally invent ethical mandates or realities or something like that. But, but like the idea um, that, uh, that human beings in all of our distinctiveness are also an expression of nature is, is something we're growingly aware of. Uh, and if you ask the traditional kind of modern reductionist about consciousness, like our first person experience of ourselves, they're like, well, you know, it's, it's what your brain does. Now, one, that's not that much of a testable statement scientifically with the kind of the limits of science, how it functions and the other right. persons there. Uh, but, uh, but then we started getting um, uh, – there's been a kind of an explosion of early brain science. So we, not just like the kind of global neural workspace theory where there are these correlates between our testimony of first-person experience and, uh, and you know, what happens in a brain scan. Uh, but then we started getting things like integrated information theory uh, that was like, well, well what, if, what if there isn't just like this is the machine, the brain, that then generates the consciousness? Uh, and – and um, the the moment we were like, well, what if consciousness isn't just an epiphenomena of sorts of the brain organ? Then, and you don't want to go back to magic dualist where the humans are an exception. Like, how do we give an account of nature where we're a part of it? Like, our deep, like, what is it like to look at something red, taste something sweet, to fall in love, and all these things? You can give a beautiful scientific account, and that's not the whole thing. Well, uh, then it became, whoa, we what are the dead options in philosophy that might be alive again? One of them being something like panpsychism or emergent consciousness and these kind of things. Uh, and in the last few years, a number of these different projects where I kind of functioned uh, in dialogue as like the philosopher that w was there, there's some like, for example, well, what do we like even human consciousness? We, we now have a whole series of studies of people who are twins, like twins in utero before they have a brain stem performing actions that our normal scientific theory requires you to have a frontal cortex of a brain to do, uh, moving away from, uh, toxins, engaging in play with your twin, uh, these kinds of things, right? So we see the things we would normally point to and go, okay, they're conscious and that's functioning because we have a brain. We now have humans in utero doing it and not. Then, uh, there's been an explosion of research about fungi that, I have a completely different way of organizing information in relationship to the universe, but have, once you model the way the information generates action, as much complexity as what we now locate as a self. Then we start messing with our biome, our microbiome, and realize there's like millions of little creatures in you 
uh, and you don't even function and engage and interpret the world correctly without a healthy one. You might end up getting migraines and stabbing somebody, and it's because you killed all the critters off on your inside. So you're even your own experience of being yourself is an experience that is a co-experience with these other things that are all up entangled in you, but they're biologically distinct from you, but you don't know yourself without it. Right. Like you start to get to know nature, our place in it. It's weird that you start to see it showing up in these other places in one of those animals um, that we eat that has a kind of like if you start to map the way they integrate information to relate to the world, that like the dial is just way higher than some of the others or, or pigs. Um, octopus is a uh, is the one in the sea that is like high on the menu and sitting there. Uh, yeah, but, like uh, how many people stopped eating octopus after that movie, My Octopus Teacher, for that mm-hmm. reason? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, 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 so how do I you, find so like how it's do you a fascinating, a, uh, it, 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 like how it's fascinating to me how just our theory of mind changes the way we think with the same ethical framework about eating, right? So if you're a dualist or uh, of sorts, then. Like you have a clear like stop and start point. They got a soul. That's a moral question. If they don't, it's a protein and calorie thing or whatever. Um, and then if you if you're a materialist and it's all uh, if they're epiphenomena and all this kind of thing, like it's not a moral question. Um, it's a resource question. It's something to be managed. It's not like you're there. You want it to be efficient. You're not down to like torture or destroy. But it's hard unless other parts of nature get the dignity we want within us recognized. But the moment we are embedded in nature, and then and there's not like a magic gap between us, and we still want to preserve dignity of life, the the ethical questions get more complex. And I think we're just now starting to make sense of it. At the time, as a species, uh, there's all sorts of other consumption patterns that are generating problems for, you know, the flourishing of life on our current relationship to the ecosystem. Well, that's, I mean, no question about that. And we can talk about that if we get have time for it. But, but um, how do you then, as like an ethicist slash philosopher slash theologian, decide what animals you like do you still eat pork knowing what you know and if so how do you justify that yeah um i mean i would say there's a very big difference in the volume of it i eat uh the thing i spend extra money on uh the the i would say me four years ago would not spend the extra money i spend to ensure quality of life of the protein i eat that someone didn't harvest directly so I go purchase meat from butchers where I'm paying a significant more uh, to know how the animal was treated uh, and that kind of thing. So I think there's, um, and not just how they're treated, but also how that animal's relationship to the ecosystem where their life is matters as well. In North Carolina, um, pork is obviously a big deal because that's our, yeah. that's our barbecue. Um, and, um, but also, the, there are different ways of pork farms, some uh, that ultimately are assets to the other farms around it and the ecosystem uh, that's there, the way that you handle pig waste and all this kind of stuff. There are also things to think about, uh, just like how you pack them in and how they relate. Uh, I, I think there like some people with any time ethics are involved and you realize it's more complex and you're more complicit than it's more complex than you'll ever figure out. You're more complicit than you're okay acknowledging. 
the thing you're tempted to do is get some piece of knowledge that then you can inscribe yourself as pure. And I think there are ugly versions of that all across the political spectrum and they're expressed with different consumption patterns. And so for me, there's this sense that as we know more, let us be open to changing our mind, but also I don't think that your solution is the one where you're ultimately not complicit, especially when it's our relationship with our human and non-human neighbors and consumption, because life involves perishing and consumption. There's not like an opt-out, right? I think that's one of the things um, that, uh, that, that we have, because we've distanced ourselves from what's required for the generation of food, uh, and because our culture in the West has distanced itself from even old age, let alone what death looks like and things, uh, uh, elements of reality that are perfectly natural and things you will at some point without spending, unless you spend tons of money, you'll end up food to something. Yep. Uh, they, they, we just need to be, we need to begin as a given a being, about being honest about reality. And I don't think, um, our initial uneasiness as we ask these questions sets up for acknowledging it's going to be more complicated than we're ever going to know. And we have to stay open to learning new things and changing our mind. And you're going to be complicit because life is complicit and you just need an account of the world where life is that messy. And that doesn't mean you have to just, you know, ditch the whole thing or be like, well, then there's nothing good here or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, to me, this has been one of those reasons I've fallen back in love uh, recently with Reinhold Niebuhr and uh, and kind of like critical realism or, you know, uh, Christian realism in the theological sense, because um, the there is a way in which our moral imaginations will always outrun our agency. And that's a good thing to know. Like we should have a moral imaginations that make higher demands on us for the good, the beautiful, the true, these kind of things. Like we could, should be able to imagine, but it outruns our agency because we're always already embedded in systems where we're more aware of what we're being formed to do, inherited to do, and our options are being limited. And so like we, Tony, like, I mean, our friendship, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, the entire time I had the agency to exercise six hours a week. It's just I didn't do it until a year and a half ago. Now, are there what, what changed in it? Well, I no longer have two full-time jobs, and I don't change diapers and white butts all the time. And I think I've gotten a little bit better at being a partner and a dad, and so I'm not constantly anxious about that. And um, my income's not tied to a congregation anymore. And, like, I could go through these, and they kind of explain away or whatever. Right. But there was always a possibility uh, and if you just want an excuse where, oh, well, I can't do X, Y, or Z, you could do that. Or, but if you, if, if we realize that all of us have the ability to imagine realities that we don't possess the agency at any given moment to get, then it sets up, up for us to be, uh, to ha have a, uh, I don't know, a kind of a graciousness towards the fact that we're in a screwed up situation. Mm -hmm. Um, in that same limit of agency unrelated to our moral imagination shows up with, uh, with even our, our, our own home. You know, sometimes people get really worked up over ethical things. They got prescriptions for all of culture. And then you ask them like, well, last time you and your partner had a, a discussion about the budget, how did that go? And then you realize 
that human beings have a hard time figuring out that. And it's with the person they said they were going to attempt to love the best their whole life. Mm-hmm. Or you two can't even figure out how to relate at a given time exactly about what the person you brought in the world's doing. Like human beings ability, like we should just be honest that we're kind of screwed up and broken and we cultivate these ideals that in our imagination. So then what do we do with that? Let's admit the complexity and the complicity. And then in a context of honesty, I think that in, in if you're speaking theologically, in the context of grace, you have permission to be screwed up and working on it. Mm-hmm. And I think when it goes to issues around the environment and justice, consumption and justice, ethics of, of hunting, food production, all these kinds of things – those issues in the present are ones that people's identity is so tied to the complexity uh, and the complicity are hard to acknowledge. Um, and so they, they, they're the perfect places in the right context to learn, to think, to develop that moral imagination, but easy solutions are hard. And yeah. you want to know what made me not want to care about the fact uh, that animal treatment uh, has come to matter the people that first told me about it. They were so holier than thou about it and yeah. obnoxious. And then you say to them the thing you want to say, like, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but you do know the death that is entailed in the high volume of edamame consumption that you're advocating to get your protein. You know, like, right. yeah, that's yeah, what course. you do. You get, it becomes posturing. And that's why that that kind of complicity and complexity thing, uh, I think, gives a different, orientation for it yeah sorry for ranting at you but no you no you, you even got your dog worked up about it it sounds like who's named after an ewok wicket so you know <laughs> i i, so I think i you, i could have gotten trouble if uh we've already we've already talked on this podcast with multiple guests about would you eat your dog so we don't even have to go there i think Ewoks wicket's would. doesn't got enough uh meat on him I want to ask you about God and God's role in this, because I know you've thought a lot about this, and um, you've talked a lot about kind of, I guess, that last rant was really about theological anthropology and who we are in the midst of this creation. But I think you you also have um, a perspective on how God relates to the creation that is probably unfamiliar to a lot of listeners who grew up in, you know, a traditional uh, Western Christian Protestantism or even Catholicism. So, te- I mean, pointedly, how does <laughs> what what role does God play in this uh, morally complex environment in which we live? where we're complicit yeah. in the death of animals. And frankly, I mean, I, I guess I could imagine a science fiction writer coming up with a universe in which um, the the sentient beings don't have to eat other beings in order to survive and evolve, but that's the one we're in. So what's God's... How is God implicated in that? Yeah, uh, you know... A lot of, uh, a lot of, I think one place to begin is to acknowledge just how different our understanding of the world is now than, you know, a hundred years ago, let alone 500 years ago, where most, most of the language and symbols we use for God were initially formed. 
Um, I mean, even in the last year, we have gotten new pictures from the, the Webb telescope where our current, our best account of physics and, or, and cosmology does not have a way to explain the formation of galaxies billions of years earlier than we thought they could. Right. So like, we, we, like if you went back a couple hundred years ago, we didn't know that we we're a mediocre solar system and a mediocre galaxy and that there are billions of galaxies. Uh, we didn't know uh, 50 years ago that there are there are now planets that can sustain life that don't have the oxygen water relationship and temperature expectations we have. There's so many things if we're just trying to talk about God in the world. And how God might be involved in it. The earth is has been decentered in in certain elements. But also, I think the other side of it is we have to be honest in the sense that some of these elements about human beings, like once we like dethrone the human as the exception of everything in the center of the cosmos, um, we we are the closest access point we have to what the cosmos can become. On our planet, the, the creature with the highest kind of creativity, complexity, self-awareness, engagement of the transcendent, all these kinds of things is us. And uh, I think that also means, the, okay, knowing just how natural that story is that we have, that, you know, 13.8 billion years ago, and, and again, I'm about to tell a story we know's wrong, but it's the best account we have right now. So when I gave the, the, the statement about complexity, like this is kind of how – like the, there was a quantum fluctuation in a vacuum. What's that? It's the explanation of a mathematical theorem we have to help us understand how mass energy started out of nowhere and, <laughs> and happened. But the nowhere is not a nothing. We don't know what that means, but physicists have fight about it, all right? But so like there, you have this explosion, and rather quickly you start to have particular habits, habits of relationship of energy that if they didn't work all the way to this moment and the next moment, we're all screwed. There's no more complexity could generate life. And then over time, this starts to happen. The cosmological constants uh, are ways that get there. Um, it, it, you get there and then all of a sudden, what well, you know, you kind of um, out of quantum physics comes solid state physics as energy gets more stable and those kind of rules start to apply. Then you get a series of dead stars exploding and going out. And you know what happens over time? You get a periodic table. You got a nice periodic table. There were no, there was no chemicals before. The world wasn't stable enough for chemicals. The relationship of mass, which we discovered later, is just pockets of events of energy. But nonetheless, and then on this periodic table, on one side, you got ones that are extremely stable, and they're like, I don't want to mess with you to their neighbors. And you got other ones, oh, they're like polyamorous. Uh, elements. They're just ready to play. And you put them in the right situation, they got an extra electron, and they're ready to toss it in somewhere else or pick up someone else's. And you know what happens when you get this giant, now stable, emergent system of chemistry under certain conditions, and the only one we know of right now is our planet, those things actually are the, they generate a whole other layer of emergent complexity and newness and awesomeness. And it's called life. Now, it was really boring on this planet for a long time with life. 
are just one single cell organisms that are running around. And then one of them had a hiccup, partnered with their neighbor. Now you got a multicellular organism. They have more agency starts to emerge in these organisms in that they engage their environment and choose uh, towards flourishing. And those that choose towards flourishing as they get to know their environment better, have a longer survival rate, they get to reproduce more. And then what happens? Uh, I mean, you start going through like the whole story of our, of our, of our planet and the ecosystems and the way all these things evolve. And so like the, like when we start to ask about God, world and values in the present, and we're honest about our limits of what we know, but also go, whatever we, whatever we use the word God for, um, and especially if you're a monotheist and use the word creator is, is in some way related to a story where there were billions of years where new patterns emerge, become constant, and those become the assumed reality in the next moment that generate a new level of growing complexity. And eventually, after 40, like uh, it was, uh, it's not until whatever, 40 million years ago, you get anything near uh, <laughs> near what we think of, it, we're explaining, right? Well, the moment we think right, of ecosystems right. and ethical eating. Uh, right. And then humans don't show up on the menu uh, until much later, right? So, yeah. The, the, if we just go, that's the cosmos we're in, and God is the word that for the West has been, is, is the word we use to talk about value, meaning, and purpose, then you look at the cosmos and go, something like, at least for me, um, the, the, the source of possibility, sustainability, and generativity that has led to a growing complexity such that stardust that starts in a vacuum with a couple dead stars can be a friend where we get on Zoom and have this conversation. Right? Like, what makes sense of that? What, mm -hmm. and, and, and one where we could tell each other stories of where we had to forgive someone uh, and it could move each other, or where uh, you had to forgive yourself, or where you had to sacrifice for the well-being of others, or you fall in love and all of a sudden you're, the biology that's in you no longer, it, it takes over and your rationality falls out and yet it's this beautiful thing. But then out of it comes this child and these relationships and you don't know yourself without them and it's beautiful and it calls upon you and they have claim on you. And yet you don't even know if you were riding or driving in this situation. No, that's sitting there. That's part of being human. And, um, and, and I just think that there's uh, a, uh, like so often when people use the word God, what they're, what you, we get irritated about is using it as a justification for uh, uh, conversations about the good where complexity of the world's not acknowledged and our complicity isn't the reality good happens in. Or we're talking about creation and we're like, we'll use the word God as a stop holder to shove mm -hmm. a mystery in some place so we have an explanation or to ignore the growing awareness we have of the world. To me, the, the the like the problems we have largely about the conversation of God uh, in, in the West are conversations about like God in Gothic font. Hmm. Like it, it's it's a vision of God that doesn't even include what we know about the world and our own experience of ourselves. Mm -hmm. In the same way, the con the, a lot of the really reductive scientific accounts of the cosmos don't make sense of the complexity of what it means to be human. It, they don't give an account of the world where value has a, uh, has a reality and goodness is something other than uh, fan fiction. Right. And so the, the, it, 
like in that framework, there's a completely different way, I think, of seeing the wisdom one receives from religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a Christian and clergy and things, like I, I, I'm very grounded in that one. Uh, and, you know, you know, well, I have no problem talking about Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And but so, I would just so say, want- like, for those that love nature, for those yep. that like have this, like, that, like your book, your book's a beautiful way of describing where these kind of, the, the, there's a, the, the ability of deeply resonating with the reservoir of existence that seizes you and calls you out of you to become something different. And you don't have to use a cathedral to do it or, you know, all these other kinds of things. But that depth dimension uh, is something human beings have been wrestling with for a long time. And I think religious traditions offer wisdom that's been honed over time to help us orient ourselves towards that depth. It also mm-hmm. can empower cognitive mechanisms towards tribalism, prejudice, and other things. So like, you know, uh, you, I would say again, it's like complex. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. anyway. Uh, well, I want to build on that then to go from talking about God to, you know, five minutes on Jesus. And I know to try to cut you off av- about Jesus for five after five minutes is going to be nearly impossible, but you know this this episode we're recording it and it's going to come out in mid to late advent of 2023 and you've you've been thinking about and and teaching about advent for many years and you've even had a couple classes this fall on advent that you're currently running so then building on what you just said about what we can suss out about god based on the complexity and the layer, the levels of evolving complexity over the billions of years um, of the cosmos, what, how, how do you approach, I guess personally, more than teaching us about Advent, how do you personally approach Advent? Yeah, so, I mean, Advent is one of the, I mean, it's my favorite liturgical season because the... The it is one of the times the church's intuitions in the in the way its calendar structured runs parallel with multiple religious traditions. Um, and to really get it, you'd have to like set the religious calendars to the way the seasons work in mm-hmm. the you know the geographic area where they emerge. Um, but across religious traditions, uh, the when you experience um, a growing level of darkness. And at some point you get to the darkest day and then the days get longer. What this is what I meant by religious traditions. I think, um, um, uh, that you can see in them an organic wisdom that it helps to narrate and Im- embed people in a certain wisdom that exists within nature. Mm-hmm. Right? So what is it? Uh, what is Advent is the way that the church asks us to pause along with the rest of creation to attend to the darkness that's there invites us to sit and wait and pray and without with the prayers that run through advent or like come come they we mm-hmm. pray for the arrival the coming of god uh and um and, and oftentimes you think of the advent wreath that each week a different candle is being lit all the way till you get to Christmas. You like the fifth one in the middle, the Christ candle. And what's happening, right? As we're getting closer and closer to peak darkness, 
in the waiting of the darkness, as you sit in one week, oh, we're pondering the coming of love in the world or the coming of peace or joy, these kinds of things. Uh, we're telling the story of a persecuted people groaning for the justice of God. We're telling the story of an unwed mother making space for the divine. All these kind of things are inviting us, like in what ways in your life and in the complexity of your relations, can you make space for peace, love, joy, hope to arrive? What good is it if you sit here and tell a story about God giving God's self in this one place if we too don't become the very place that God comes? Hmm. And why do we do it then? So often after it, you get the beginning of years. Uh, you, you get the rising, uh, the days get longer. You get the going soon into fields to sow. You get the awakening of animals that hibernate that are the large game animals. Like you just start to look at how this, it, there's a rhythm and, and it's taking the rhythm that exists in life in nature. And then it, and then it's also resonating with the story of, of your, of each religious tradition has stories the way they understand the divine. And for Christians, um, that story is grounded in one, uh, the, the history of Israel, that the persecuted and kicked out uh, and, and, and occupied people are the, uh, like that, uh, they too are, are, you know, have the eye of God. And then all the way down to Mary and Joseph's uh, own narratives, and namely that God gives God's, the fullness of God's self that's been the creative work from the very beginning, mm -hmm. um, uh, gets sandals and becomes among us. And so you get, who's God? God's Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, who is God? The one that has chosen identity with the underside and the oppressed and these kinds of uh, things that sit there. Who's God? Uh, where, where, what does it mean to be wise? It means to, to find God not in the places of, of like Herod's palace of power, uh, but in in the stable, like there, who is it that hears what the reign of God being announced, the gospel of the Prince of Peace in, in Luke? Uh, where do the angels come? They happen to sing a song that sounds very much like the announcing of Caesar's empire expanding, except they'd sing it to shepherds mm -hmm. uh, on the outskirts. And they're the ones that bear the good news. Like, you know, one sense you could have really, really cheesy nativities with the story. Oh, it's counting down to Christmas. Another is, uh, it's an opportunity to recognize that there are natural rhythms to life, ones that all of nature's on, and it might be wise for us, too, to pause and join. And guess what? As this creature that now, unlike any other part of our history, our actions make or break the possibilities for all of our non-human neighbors as well. Hmm. What would it mean for us to trust both the wisdom of the rhythm of the world and the rhythm of our tradition and ask what peace and love and joy and hope look like when our spot on the cosmos now needs something from us it had never needed before. Mm -hmm. What would the prayer of God's coming look like in this moment? I, I think it's, I think it's true. And on top of that, you don't have a pretty high Christology and all that other kind of stuff. <laughs> but like, if you're asking about the, the piety of it, the prayer, like what's going on in it. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be cool as shit if a bunch, if there were, if there were communities dispersed around the world that thought um, we should gather and hold space so that our minds 
share the mind of the one who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled themselves because we have been inscribed into liturgies and patterns of consumption that don't recognize the suffering of our non-human neighbors uh, or the exploitation that happens in our consumption to uh, human neighbors around the world. You know, and that's one of those things, like trip that might be wild and crazy. No, no, this is where liberal Protestant trip and Pope Francis agree. It's just mm-hmm. he got the right encyclicals about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, and I think, you know, if you had, uh, if, if you had uh, a rabbi on here who talked about Hanukkah and that story and it's time and yeah. that you would get something similar. Um, if you, if you were talking about, you know, augmenting uh, for, when the coal, when the dark months happen and you heard there's a whole collection of different Hindu festivals, uh, based on, um, when the darkest point is for them that have emerged. Uh, but then if you look at what the practices are in those, uh, in those different festivals, they might use a different image or name for the deity, but all of them have an invitation, right? Brahman is Brahman and Atman, or the same thing, like that that insight. What is it like that Brahman is Atman, Atman is Brahman, when Brahman and Atman reveal this breathing in and breathing out of existence? What happens at the big exhale? That was one of the images. So there's these breath prayers. Anyway, like I think that's yeah. cool. Like do and so like maybe you're just so enlightenment and scientific and evolved, you want to ignore what 98% of all human beings that have ever lived do. Had, is, had to pay attention to, which was yeah, they had to pay season. attention yep. to it. So That's maybe right. you got to go watch a TED talk to learn about the natural rhythms of existence. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on if we weren't out of time about this and and hunting and even like on Monday at the hunting lodge we hosted a farmer and his wife for dinner and just talking to them about you know I was like, uh, hey, I'm going to be back in South Dakota. Speaking at Pheasant Fest, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, you guys should come down to Sioux Falls and see us. And the farmer goes, that's calving time. That's calving season. Like, I can't leave the farm during calving when the cows are giving birth. Like, I got to be here. I got to be like 24 hours a day if one comes out sideways, you know. Anyway, um, okay, last question from the sublime to the ridiculous. We've already done Star Wars, but you're even more immersed in the Lord of the Rings universe that was built by J.R. Tolkien. Okay. I'm sure you wouldn't eat a hobbit. No. Hobbits hobbits ate sheep, right? Eat sheep. Are we going to use hobbits in the present tense? Yeah. I I keep uh, Sam in my heart right next to Jesus. Yeah. And they're probably living in some parallel universe to us right now. Um, Would you eat an orc? I, I mean, the meat eat. would be nasty. Yeah. Have you seen what orcs eat? I don't know. <laughs> no. And What do they eat? They, they Their blood is like black, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the whole question of orcs, that's actually one of those real fascinating things in Lord of the Rings. Um, I'll say it real brief, and then you can get to your real question, because uh, <laughs> early on, um, Tolkien, the orcs are essentially like animated rock and dirt. They're like murder bots because he needed a bad guy to kill. But then as someone that's deeply Catholic, and then especially as the growth of industrialization and all this stuff happens, and you as he as he edits and retells a story, 
the orcs are connected to the baddies who are also the the industrializing the mechanizing of nature yeah. uh but also he's catholic and part of the early catholic response to industrialization its impact on human beings in the environment is the assertion that all things uh come from one good god and they're good so then he's like well now i have an ethical predicament because i got I, who are they going to go kill if they're actually share the fi- one true fire of uh, of right. of Aru the high god uh, in, uh, in in the legendarium for Tolkien and so you know he had oh well they're perverted humans or tortured or perverted elves they you kept trying to come up with an explanation because uh, it, like it, it like he created this story and then ethically judged his story because mm. there is no part of creation that doesn't get the dignity of being a creature and he had made one without it and yeah. um and so he wanted to fix that and so when you watch rings of power the amazon show and, and people are like oh well that's not what they do with the orcs in the book but what they're doing in the show is actually what tolkien wanted to eventually re-edit because he edited all the time to sure. re-edit it uh so that um his account of the orcs uh, they had to be a perversion of the, a good creation. Of something good, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, a good Augustinian uh, uh, reworking. So, I mean, but, the eagles, uh, the, you, you can't eat the eagles, the giant uh, eagles. They work, they work. So, you know, there's like layers. There's yeah. like the real one god, but then there's like yeah. the underlings. And the right. eagles are connected to one of the underling deity. And you can't chop down the trees because they're well, sentient. Uh, well, you don't you don't want to pick a fight with, with the ints. No, they'll step on you and squash you. So, like, but, what do you what do they eat? Oh, they, what meat well, do the, they eat? Well, they raise sheep. I mean, right? The hobbits have sheep. Yeah, they they're hunt. like sheep. They're very pastoral. Oh, they yeah, do hunt. And, oh yeah, yeah. Aragon's a legendary hunter. Okay, uh, and he's the archetype of the human for the fourth age because he's, you right. know, he wanted to write a mythology for the the for the united kingdom essentially because they didn't have a mythology like so many other parts yeah. of europe and he's weaving in uh elements Nordic of different and, yeah from mm-hmm. all the people that have you know made up the what what came to be the individuals in the united kingdom um and so there are these different ages the end of lord of the rings where you know the reconstitution of the king of gondor the elves going into the west right uh, all that kind of stuff where the the humans are now the primary character, uh, that is the beginning of the age we're in. Um, gotcha. You know, because that's why uh, the the hobbits have just kept getting smaller, and they're like the yeah. little they they function as like the little pixie fairies and uh, stories and things like that. So, um, so a lot of times when you ask yourself uh, when looking at Lord of the Rings about uh, the intuitions of Tolkien, um, sometimes you go like, well. When it goes to how power should function, how, what does Aragon demonstrate? There's that, and then if it goes to what is what is worth going to Mordor for, then you listen to the descriptions of the hobbits, and the hobbits' descriptions are, um, if you look at like some of Sam and Frodo's conversations as they're going through uh, Mordor, uh, it's descriptions of the land, it's descriptions of the people. Mm-hmm. As descriptions of very simple food and drinks with their friends, um, they want to go have a party under the party tree, which is essentially like a good reason to drink all day and tell poems and songs and stuff. Um, the the vision of home 
that you get at the Shire at the beginning of the Hobbit and and Lord of the Rings uh, is is really the 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 kind of the the Britain of Tolkien's youth before industrialization and the in, and and where the countryside yeah. was animated for war. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you can see what he thinks about it when. Yeah. Um, this isn't in the books, but in I mean it's in the books, but not in the movies. After uh, what happens in the books, there's this whole scouring of the shower. Like the hobbits come back, and um, the 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 Shire has been taken over uh, yeah. with people working with Sauron, um, and they have to go like kick out these people. What did they do? They started industrializing the Shire. They started doing efficiency things and moving families around where they don't have their same neighbors. They right. started bringing in other workers and technology to fields and removing the dignity of family farms. They started like it is just basically like if someone you know like I bet I bet if uh, um, oh what's his name uh, uh, Kentucky Christian writer uh, environmentalist. Um, oh, um, um, I, I can't believe it went right oh out of gosh. my head. Why I had it too. And Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry. Yeah. No, it's got big Wendell Berry vibes, right? Like you yes. read a Wendell yeah. Berry essay and you're like, dang it. I wish I could just live off my own farm again and then I go know. have a beer with my friends. Um, they, but they go and they, the whole reclaiming thing happens. And then you find out all the way back, uh, in the very beginning when they visit Gladrill. Uh, and she gives them each gift. What is it she gave Sam, who's really the hero of the show? It's dirt. Mm -hmm. Dirt from a place uh, for someone that had a magic ring. Uh, she did. One of the three elvish rings that weren't corrupted because mm -hmm. Sauron wasn't part of making them. Uh, preserving Lothlorien, where, where they go, and you like all the elves in the trees. Dirt from there. And this is dirt from the people who were closest to the land. Mm -hmm. And had a flourishing relationship. He brings that dirt, and they had destroyed the party field to cut down the tree. And what's he do is he scatters it around all the all the gardens and uh, in the Shire, and then uses the seed that's in it and puts it and grows this giant party tree. In the description of the return is like if you just go read it, it's a description of how nature's coming back into their home, and there's a certain dynamism in in, uh, in Tolkien's vision of of what is it like to steward the relationship uh, in ways that it's reciprocal and it's sustainable. And if you look at what breaks it down in Lord of the Rings, um, it's when nature no longer is what sustains you and you sustain it, but the means mm -hmm. by which you get the resources to conquer your neighbor. Uh, that's there. Yeah. And, the, and the second is, is the wild is something to be honored and protected, not to be feared, or not to be to just be turned over, right? Like right. there's this whole element to them, of of of, of re, there's a there's like the rebuilding of the domesticated part of nature, and then there's the rewilding of the conquered part. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that the the of all the things, I mean, I love so much about that thing about yeah. the about the story, but the more I think we're in, there are more people today that read it and notice. Um, that our homes have been scoured in many of the same ways, right? Like yeah, that yeah. the way uh, power, politics, 
economic system and demands, habits of consumption have alienated us from the land, alienated us from our neighbors, and then used and turned all that energy into things that deteriorate the quality of life and community. Um, And what, what would it be like to reorient? And it, to me, it's fascinating that he wanted all of his neighbors to have high quality gardens where they could eat out of it. And he wanted to reinstate a party tree where you can all go have giant parties and if you live long enough, what you do at your birthday parties is you give all your friends gifts. They don't give them to you. Right. Because what it what is like Bilbo, you know, it begins yeah. with his birthday yeah. party. Like, uh, what does it mean if you give everyone a gift and it's unique to them? It means they're coming to celebrate your life, but they actually make up your life so much that you're gifting them for being at your party. Hmm. That n- implies a kind of knowledge of your neighbors uh, that I, I don't think we get um that easily anymore right and so to me that relationship of nature and neighborhood uh, you see in in the hobbits is really attractive um hmm. even though as you know I'm, i i don't know if the, i can't grow anything i'm not that's not been on my well you grow you grow our imaginations uh, you and i could talk for much longer and we have and we will continue to um yeah and I appreciate you coming on because this is great. And uh, I'll, I've already said in the introduction with Brandon stuff, you, some projects you and I have coming up in a live event in Minneapolis and stuff like that. So people are aware of that and they can come out and see you if, in, in the Twin Cities area in early January when you're here and um, listen to our Emerged podcast to hear you and me uh talk about something totally different that we haven't even touched on in this in this conversation yeah. but it's true man, thanks a million thanks for your friendship truly thanks for your friendship and uh here, here's to many more years of conversation excellent 